Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we will be joined in a little bit by Alabama head coach Brad Bohannon. But first, I've got to let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're back here, second episode of the week. Uh, we're back to doing this podcast twice a week, so make sure you're subscribed if you're interested in, in uh, having college baseball in your podcasting feed. Two times a week, find the Baseball America College podcast uh, wherever you're listening to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Check it out, rate, review, subscribe. We appreciate all of that. Uh, this week or this episode, we're, we're continuing our conference previews on the podcast with the SEC. That's why Brad Bohannon is going to be here to join us, talk a little bit about the Tide, which we feel like is a team that's going to take a step forward in the conference this year coming off of uh, what was a very exciting start to the, the 2020 season, uh, really like the Tide for 2021. Joe, we're, uh, we're looking at an exciting, uh, you know, SEC season, and, you know, we're, we're going to get into that here on the pod. We're going to get to a little bit of news before we get to the SEC and, and to Brad Bohannon, but it's, uh, it, it's good to be back in the saddle with, uh, our second podcast of the week. It is. It's like uh, putting on, uh, I don't know, use whatever metaphor you want to use. It's, it's like riding a bike. It's like putting on a, a good good pair of jeans you haven't worn in a while that fits really well. Any of those metaphors will work because it, it does feel kind of nice to be back to twice a week. We are approaching Super Bowl Sunday, which is kind of an, uh, it, it's, it's, I found it really interesting to observe Super Bowl week uh, I'm interested in the game, at least somewhat, not, not a big NFL. I, I would never profess to be a big NFL fan, much more of a, a college football guy, but, you know, obviously I, I watch the game. I pay attention. I kind of know generally the storylines, especially this year, since we have such a, a blockbuster matchup, but I've been more fascinated just by the apparatus around the Super Bowl. And I think anyone who watches a decent amount of sports TV knows that this week is just like blowout week for you know, ESPN and, and Fox Sports and, and whoever else, CBS, doing the studio shows from, from the Super Bowl. The, you know, you get all the live shots of kind of the, the pomp and circumstance around the Super Bowl site. You get Radio Row if you listen to sports radio shows or if you watch some of the, I know some of the studio shows even set up on Radio Row. So that has all been kind of absent from this lead up to the Super Bowl. And I'm not typically watching a ton of, you know, shows like the debate shows on ESPN, things like that. I don't, I don't watch a lot of that. So I'm sure they're still doing some of that content, even though it might not be on site in the same way. But I have been kind of fascinated by the general idea of just how little it's felt like Super Bowl week leading up to uh, this Super Bowl, when normally I think this would be the most Super Bowlist of Super Bowl weeks. When you have Tom Brady back in the, the Super Bowl, this time in a Bucks uniform, and the Bucks are playing at home. And on the other side, you've got Patrick Mahomes and you know, the Chiefs are this kind of modern juggernaut that are maybe trying to become this, this new Patriots of the 2020s. And, and yet it just kind of, I think, unless you're really in that world, it just hasn't quite 
been the same. And I've, I know I'm starting off on just a complete off topic thing, but uh, I have found that fascinating this week. All I know is that somebody asked Patrick Mahomes about his one appearance on the mound for Texas Tech, which did not go well at all. Uh, and uh, then somebody like went and tracked down some of the NIU players who knocked him around. Um, Mahomes did not record an out in his one pitching appearance for, for the Red Raiders. Um, he, uh, there, there was, I think he said he gave up a couple runs. Two or three runs. I, I think he did, I and I don't. I don't think somebody. So Roger Sherman from the Ringer posted his stat line from that day, which his stat line doubles as his season stats. It was his only appearance, as, as I think you mentioned. And I don't even know that anybody got a hit off him. I think he walked three guys and hit another, um, which there could have been other things happening around. You know, them that, that brought in those runs, but um, you know somebody commented on the tweet that Roger Sherman posted like that one hit by pitch must've really hurt. That's true, by the way. I mean, obviously quite an arm <laughs> on him. So, I mean, that, that, you know, hitter got his money's worth out of that hit by pitch, but yeah, clearly it was a uh, control and command thing with Pat Mahomes, not so much the arm strength. I'm sure he had plenty of stuff and, and plenty of arm, but clearly he has chosen the right professional path. Yeah. I wish uh, we could have gotten a little bit more of him uh, on the diamond, but uh Hard to argue. I also saw a story that um, I think his father was making the case that basketball was actually his best sport, not not the not the sport that he's you know maybe the best player in right now, and not the other sport that he played in college, but basketball. So you know, quite the talented uh, individual, obviously. Not not breaking any ground here on the podcast. Yeah, I was about to say breaking news: Patrick Mahomes, quite the athlete. Yeah, I mean that, that's I, I'm I'd be fascinated just if for no other reason than. You know, I seeing what we see from him on the football field, you, you have to think that he probably figures it out on the diamond somehow, some way. Um, you know, who knows how good he actually he could have been, but you just kind of have to figure somebody who um, is clearly that driven and knows his body that well and is that type of athlete, like would have figured something out at some point. So that would have been interesting to interesting to see play out. But uh, alas, we will always have to just uh, wonder what could have been. Yeah, I think that is uh, that is fair to say. Uh, also in the football world this week, in the college football world, it was signing day. Um, baseball signing day, of course, was in November. Uh, so not a whole lot happening on the baseball front. Even most of the two-sport guys signed in football's first signing day in December. Uh, however, uh, Taiwan Malone, um, who might be the most interesting two-sport guy that I can remember. Um, certainly not, I don't want to say the most interesting two-sport guy ever, but he's a six-foot-three, six-foot-four, 300-pound defensive tackle who also plays first base and has enormous right-handed power. And he signed with uh, Ole Miss, made that commitment on Wednesday. Uh, he's also a draft prospect in baseball. We'll see just how good of a draft prospect. He's from New Jersey. I'm not sure how much baseball New Jersey is going to get to play this year, both A, because it's a cold weather state and there's only so much high school baseball New Jersey gets to play in a normal year and then B, you know, the pandemic. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to impact his draft stock, but uh, as of right now, at least, I, I would expect him to, to go to Ole Miss, not, not be involved too heavily in the draft. And I, for one, cannot wait to see him 
in an SEC uniform or in an SEC game in an Ole Miss uniform. Uh, just you don't see guys that are built like him playing baseball all that often. Uh, you sure don't see him in college baseball. And I just think that would be an awful lot of fun, uh, no matter what comes of it. I totally agree. I've seen so I, I've taken a, a, a good look at some some video of him playing baseball. It's out there on, on YouTube. And it is fascinating because you just don't really see bodies like that on the diamond too often. And furthermore, to the extent you see bodies like that, you don't see them move like he does. And I think this goes back to something that's been talked about a ton in football circles for, for, for years now, really, that the you know defensive tackles, for example, are no longer built. They aren't built the way they kind of used to be and built to play the way they used to be. You know, the defensive tackles now are just so much more athletic. And I think I'm, I'm certainly no expert, but the name I hear a lot is like a guy like Aaron Donald has really kind of changed the way people think about the defensive tackle position. And so you imagine a defensive tackle playing baseball and you might have a certain image in your head of what that kind of looks like. And when you hear, oh, he's a power hitting first baseman, you're like, oh, okay, of course. But then you see it in action and you're like, oh, no, this is an athlete. And yes, he's a big body. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no way around that. But like he's an athlete and, you know, it's limited video, but he moves pretty well at first base. And, you know, he, he, he's no stiff over there. That's for sure. So he, I, I'm with you. I'm absolutely fascinated to see what, what it would look like with him on the diamond. So I, I hope we get that, that chance. But it, it's clear just in the little video that I see is someone who is, who is not a professional evaluator. But when I see it, I mean, I see an athlete who, you know, happens to also, you know, be a defensive tackle and is an athlete in a way that we're not used to seeing defensive tackles athletes yeah absolutely um so he'll join jerry neely and john rice plumley uh there at at ole miss as as two sport athletes quickly becoming one of the the most two sport uh friendly schools in the country so something to watch uh in the in the years to come uh, i would say the other most significant piece of news this week in the college baseball world was Oklahoma freshman Cade Horton, who was slated to play second base pitch one of the top 10 or so, uh, definitely within the top 10 um, player freshman to make it to campus. Uh, he will be out for this season due to Tommy John surgery, uh, tough blow for Horton, tough blow for the Sooners, though. Uh, Joe and I, you, we, we discussed this offline, and neither one of us has really materially changed the way we see the Sooners without Horton. Uh, I mean, it is a, a significant thing that they're not going to have his his athleticism, you know, both in the lineup and on the mound. Uh, he had a tremendous fall, from what I understand. Uh, but they they have enough depth in the lineup and in the pitching staff that I think they'll be able to uh, to overcome the loss without taking a significant step backwards. Agreed. I mean, I think he was going to have a role and, you know, I, in the preview, um, which, you know, was already out. And this is the risk you take sometimes. It just happens. Um, I had him as the newcomer of the year in the Big 12 based on my thought that he would have a role. But but it's not also not like, you know, and um you know, the, the, the preseason information we were getting from the Oklahoma program, it's not as if, you know, he had, was kind of had a clear cut starting role and, and wasn't involved in a competition. So like, it, it could be also that, um, that they had other options. So uh, yeah, cer certainly a blow to, 
to the depth and certainly to their, their high end talent. But I don't think it, there were a lot of other reasons why we thought Oklahoma was going to be as good and as limited uh, on both ends of the spectrum as, as they, as they are. So yeah, not, not a huge change there. Had I, had I done newcomer of the year again, you know, maybe Tanner Witt at Texas, I think is, is probably the next name on that list who is kind of in a similar place at Texas where it's like, he'll have a role, but we're not exactly sure how big of a role or what exactly it's going to be yet. So we'll have to kind of wait and see for that. Interestingly, we just barely avoided the, um, what I guess we would have had to start calling the baseball America curse, because I, I also saw that, um, Stetson pitcher Daniel Parrott, one of the this is not the thought, baseball America curse. This is the Joe Healy does your conference preview curse. Don't don't put this on me. So <laughs> Daniel Parrott, a big part of the Stetson rotation, which is is good outside of Daniel Parrott, but he was a, a big part of it. Twenty nineteen freshman of the year in the Atlantic Sun um, is going to miss this entire season. I had heard that he was going to miss some time, and I was kind of like, okay. So in the preview, I hedged a little bit and talked about. Um, you know, he's going to miss some time early in the season. And now it's come out that he's going to miss the entire season. Um, I nearly, he was in the discussion to be a son pitcher of the year. Uh, I eventually went with Mason Studstill from Florida Gulf coast. So narrowly missed having not one, but two preseason award winners uh, announced after the previews went live that they would be miss, missing the entire season. So um, narrowly missed that one, but that one, I think not to get into a deep dive on Stetson, the a son, but that one is more material to the conference race. And I just think the A Sun is going to once again, kind of be a little bit of a free for all. So should be a fun league. And, and that's a big loss for Stetson. Yeah. I mean, I'm not concerned, like, like not to go back to the Joe likes established roles and Teddy just likes talent um, conversation slash debate, but uh, Tanner Witt for me, like he's the clear cut big 12 freshman of the year favorite now. Honestly, if I had done that preview, I probably would have picked Tanner Witt anyway. Um, I, I think that he's going to going to play a significant role uh, there at Texas, probably pitching, probably hitting. Um, is he going to be their starting third baseman? Like maybe, maybe not. Uh, but he's he's certainly going to be given every opportunity to, to do both. Uh, hard to know with the two way players precisely what they're going to do, but Tanner Witt. Uh, now with Kate Horn out unquestionably has the most talent of any freshman in the big 12. So uh, race kind of opened up uh, a, a bit there, but I, I think with, uh, with wit, you know, being there, he, uh, he would, he, he now stands as the, uh, as the favorite, but that doesn't help Oklahoma at all. Uh, but I, I, you know, we've talked, before about how Oklahoma is relatively old in the lineup with with so many seniors back, and I think that that's that's a thing that's going to help them overcome this uh, this particular injury. All right, so that rounds up the uh, the news items for, for them the week. Um, so Joe, let's uh, let's get to our interview with with Brad Bohannon. Like I mentioned, Alabama coming off of a sixteen and one season in twenty twenty. Uh, we're one of the the teams streaking the the hottest when the the season was was abruptly halted. They were the second to last team to be undefeated in the country, just taking a loss uh, on the final weekend of the season against Lipscomb. I believe it was an extra innings, not 100% on that. And they uh, they returned an awful lot of talent. They did lose a couple of key draft picks, but. An awful lot of talent coming back, including Connor Prelip, who was last year's probably 
uh, freshman of the year favorites, speaking of freshmen, um, when the season was halted, he put himself in that kind of position and has already put himself in a position where people are talking about him as the potential number one overall pick in the 2022 draft. So a lot of positives happening in Alabama um, in the, the few years since Brad Bohannon took over the program there. So a lot of a lot to get into with him. And we're going to do that in just one second. But first, check this out. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to be joined by Alabama coach Brad Bohannon. That's uh, 2000. Well, I can't remember the year now. I should have pulled that up. Baseball America slash ABCA assistant coach of the year, Brad Bohannon. Uh, coach, we're, we're happy to be talking with you here. Uh, we're a couple weeks out from opening day, and I'm sure excitement is high for you as it is uh, for everyone around the country. Yeah, we're, we're all just so anxious to play. And, um, you know, kids around the country just haven't played enough baseball the last nine or 10 months. So um, I, I think any year you, you're excited for opening day, you throw in the fact that, um, you know, that your group thinks that, you know, they're a good team. And, and then obviously the coming off the pandemic and not playing a lot last spring and summer just adds to, to the excitement. So February 19th just can't get here soon enough. Well, you, you talked about, you know, starting the season really well last year. You were 16 and one when the season got canceled. You were the second to last undefeated team in the country. Only Florida stayed undefeated longer than you did. What, uh, what felt different about the team last year to allow them to, to get rolling so well uh, off the bat? Well, I think we had a good team and, and we had good players. And I think last year's group, just collectively was really determined to, you know, to get over the hump and to prove that they were good. Um, you know, it's no secret that, you know, we took over a program and then 2017 went five and 24 in league play and 18 and 34 overall, um, you know, and, and the SEC, especially in the West is a really challenging league to rebuild in. So, um, you know, we got better in 2018. We won more games in 2019, but obviously finished last in the league. And, uh, you know, last year's group was just just ultra determined to to prove that that we were better and when we were better. So, um, you know, that that's the thing that, that really resonates the most with me about last year's group is just how determined they were to prove that they were a good group. So we'll get one of the the kind of obvious topics out of the way here early, and that's the performance of Connor Prelip last year. Uh, stat lines don't get a whole lot better than what he put up last season. So I'm curious if there was some point at the lead up to last season when you realized, oh boy, we really have something on our hands here. And also, could you have ever imagined, you know, him having so much success right out of the gate to the extent that he did? I don't think you can ever expect anybody to pitch opening day, to pitch four times and not give up a run. I mean, you can be really darn good and, and not do that. So, you know, Connor's somebody that even in the recruiting process, we just really valued and um, it, it didn't take long for him of him being on campus in the fall to see that he was, you know, different than most of the other kids playing baseball. But, um, you know, a funny story about Connor, he pitched all last fall and I, I think maybe he gave up one run and uh, we got a couple weeks out from the season and, you know, the last thing anybody wants to do is start a freshman opening day or, you know, on Friday in league play. But, you know, it, the season got close and, you know, Jason Jackson, our pitching coach and I were like, look, if we don't pitch this guy the first game, we're going to have 30 whatever kids in the dugout just looking at us, at us like, coach, what are y'all doing? So, you know, we got a couple of weeks out and we would try to 
do everything we can for him to have some failure. So we like stacked the lineup. We put like Brett Auerbach and Tyler Gentry and Sam Prater and Drew Williamson and Owen Diodati, you know, all back to back on the other team and would make him, you know, slide step and we would artificially start runners on base. And like, we still just <laughs> couldn't do anything against him. So um, we did everything we could to, to cause him to have some adversity before the season started and he handled it all well and just had an amazing freshman season, even though it was short and has continued to make, you know, big strides and somebody that's got a really bright future. He's a guy that wasn't, super famous in high school coming from the Wisconsin ranks. When did you get him on your radar? And when did you then realize how potentially special he, he might be? Connor played in a, an outstanding uh, travel baseball organization, hitters baseball with RJ Fergus up in Wisconsin. And, you know, I, I had recruited a lot of kids out of that program when I was at the university of Kentucky uh, figured out I had a better chance of going north to get kids to come south than trying to get the southern kids to, to come north. And, um, you know, so kind of like the typical time frame, the, you know, the uh, after his sophomore year in high school that summer, you know, the junior year is when we really honed in on him. And, um, you know, he was a kid that he's always thrown strikes and won and, and had a good breaking ball, but, he, you know, he's physically immature and the, the, the velocity was a little bit later coming on. But, you know, like I said, he was a kid that we recruited as heavy as you can. We, you know, did everything we, we could legally to get him. And um, I think anybody that, that saw him pitch, even at 16 or 17 years old, liked him because he's he's always won and always had a, an elite breaking ball. You know, the, your lineup, I feel like, maybe didn't get as much attention in large part because of what Prelip was doing, but it was a, a really productive group. You named a lot of the names there right off the top. And, you, you know, you go into 2021 having to replace a couple guys, which is um, less so than a normal year, sure, but, you know, a couple guys off the top. So give us a feel for what your lineup will look like in 2021 and your expectations for that group. Tyler Gentry and Brett Auerbach are irreplaceable. I mean, those guys are great college baseball players. And, you know, Gentry was a third rounder. And I think Brett was – on pace to be, you know, a potential all league type player. And, you know, Brett was just so versatile. He could get extra base hits. He, he was an on-base machine. He could steal bases. He could play anywhere above average defensively on the field. So, um, you know, those two guys are, are going to be tough to replace, but we actually have some experience positionally. Um, you know, you never can have enough and maybe by this year's standards in college baseball, you know, we're not as old as a lot of the other teams, but, you know, Sam Prater, is in his fourth year of college. And yes, he missed most of the 2019 season with Tommy John surgery. But the, I think Sam Prater is as good as any catcher in the country. He's a, a really good defender and he's going to hit in the middle of the order. He's going to hit over 300 with double digit home runs. And he's just a real player, a real prospect. Drew Williamson is, um, uh, in his third year with us and he started as a freshman and had a really good freshman year in 2019. So he's got some experience. TJ Reeves is a really powerful dynamic corner outfielder that again is in his third year in the program. And he played a lot his freshman year in 2019. Uh, Peyton Wilson's a guy that was developing into an everyday player last year. Uh, performed well when he got his chance. And if the season had progressed, he probably would have started most every game going forward. And um, he's a switch hitter. He can really run, uh, really impacts the ball a, 
at a higher level than you would think, just looking at him and a really versatile defender. And then Owen Diodati is a really 6'3", 215 physical kid that got off to a great start last year. He hit six home runs as a true freshman in our limited season last year. So, you know, those are all guys that we're very confident in, and, and all those guys are going to hit in the top and middle of the order uh, for us um, in some way, shape, or form. Last year, the the bullpen was very special as well. Um, you know, managing all of that becomes more challenging maybe in, in this this year. How, uh, how are you guys looking at, at shaping up back there and, and just – how good do you feel with some of those guys that you have with experience at the back of the bullpen, being able to, to call on them in, in tight games? Teddy, I, I think any coach would tell you that, you know, pitching out of the pen is hard. It, it is really challenging to come in with people on base and be able to throw your best stuff like right away. You don't have time to ease into the game. And it, it, it's really challenging, especially in our league and on the road. And we have two guys that have done it in this league and done it successfully in Chase Lee and, and Bryce and uh, Brock Guffey. So Chase Lee is a, a side armor. Um, he's a, in his fourth year in college and he's going to work in the low 90s, uh, can really command the ball in and out, uh, has got a, a really good slider. He is just an incredibly uncomfortable at bat for a right-handed hitter. His changeup and his four-seam fastball have made a lot of progress. He's much better at getting left-handed hitters out now than he was just a year ago. So Chase is a guy that, that we're very confident in uh, getting us out of jams, pitching in those high leverage moments and, and getting the last few outs of a game. Brock Guffey doesn't dazzle you with stuff, but in his career, all he's done is get guys out. There's something deceptive about his fastball. You know, the, the Rhapsodo and the track man, you know, don't tell you anything statistically with his spin, but – he just doesn't get squared up. He does a good job of keeping the ball out of the middle of the plate. He, he competes. He's got good secondary stuff that he throws for a strike. And those two guys have come in and, and gotten real SEC hitters out in, in jams. And it's really comforting having those two guys that have experience doing that in this league. Before the SEC ultimately settled on a status quo scheduling format, it, it kind of felt like everything was on the table, you know, the possibility of four-game weekends or – having increased number of SEC weekends. Did that kind of the uncertainty that was throughout fall practice and the lead up to spring practice, did that kind of have you and your coaches approaching anything any differently in terms of trying to game out what that could possibly mean from a pitching standpoint or maybe not so much? You know, not so much, Joe, and it, but I think that's kind of the makeup of our staff. So, look, I, I've told everybody, I, I think it's fair to say that Connor Prelip has separated himself uh, I think it's fair to say that Chase Lee and Brock Guffey are very suited for, you know, late inning bullpen work. And so you start looking at, at the other, whatever, 16 to 21 innings of the weekend, and we've got six, seven, eight guys that are, there's very little separation. So we uh, have done this in the off season. We will do this early in the season where we're going to try to, in some ways, kind of develop six starters, you know, and, and just go into you know, a weekend and, and with the concept of we're going to have several guys have extended outings because there's very little separate separation. They all have strengths and weaknesses. They're all a little bit different. And, you know, hopefully organically over time, some guys will separate themselves in a good way and, and will want to extend their outings a little bit. And if a guy or two scuffles, then maybe we shorten their outings a little bit. And, you know, I, I think that's 
just what our staff is. And I think also in a COVID year, it's a good idea to have more than three guys that are conditioned to throw more than 30 pitches at a time. So, um, you know, I think just the, the makeup and the, the talent and experience of our staff, uh, in addition to it being a COVID year, it hasn't really changed how we have trained and how we are planning our pitching, whether we play three or four game weekends. The SEC annually, one of the best conferences, usually the best conference in college baseball. That seems like it's going to be true again this year, especially with all the returning talent uh, to the league. What do you look or what stands out to you when you look around the SEC, you know, and especially even in the SEC West, where we have five teams from the West ranked in the top 25. And, you know, if we put in either of the other two uh, into that preseason list at nobody would have would have batted an eye. I mean, it, it just looks like an incredibly loaded division that you're going to have to fight through this year. Yeah, Teddy, I think the SEC and especially the West is going to be uh, the strongest that it's ever been. Um, I talked to all of my colleagues around the league and, you know, everybody in very honestly is like, man, this is one of the best teams I've ever had. And I say that about us, you know, I, I think, um, you can make a very valid argument for any team in the league, but especially in the West to be ranked in the top 20. Um, and that includes Alabama. We have a really good team and it, it kind of depends on which day of the week you catch me, you know, we'll have a, a good practice. A couple guys will throw the ball well, and I'll have a little bounce in my step. I'm like, oh man, we're really good. You know, and then the next day I'll maybe talk to somebody else in the league or, you know, read something. I'm just like, Oh my gosh, which team are we going to pass? Holy cow. Everybody's loaded. So, um, there's going to, it's going to be as competitive as ever. There's going to be a lot, a lot of parity, I would think. Um, and a lot of it's going to come down to catching teams at the right or wrong time and who manages COVID the best and who gets hot at the right time and stays healthy and, and all of those variables. One thing I wanted to ask you about, about the schedule you guys have for 2021 is you look at what you have before conference play. And I, you know, I guess if someone is, is maybe just super focused on the SEC, they might see the names and not think a whole lot of it. But if, if for people who follow college baseball, they'll look at McNeese and Wright State and College of Charleston and Stetson and know that those are four really good college baseball programs, all four, honestly. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic to say those are four teams that, you know, perhaps favorites in their conferences to win their conference titles. So uh, tell us a little bit about the philosophy and that, the out of conference scheduling you did and then and maybe if you know how much uh you know shifting did you maybe have to do given some of the uncertainty around the country scheduling wise or were you were you locked in on this group early on Joe I, th I think you're dead on it, you know we live in a football world down here in, in in Tuscaloosa and you look at those schools McNeese and College of Charleston and Wright State and Stetson like you know they're not big football schools so um but they're all have a very valid uh, chance to be top 100 RPI teams. And the the preseason stuff is stiffer this year than it has been in the past. And I, I did that intentionally. And, and yes, there was some movement, but um, you know, this, I don't think the group that we have is a group that needs to play a really light schedule and, and hopefully start out 18 to one or 16 to one or 19 and 0 or, or whatever. We need to play some tight games. We need to play from behind you know, we need those experiences. And, and, you know, I think sometimes you have to be willing to, to lose a game or two early to potentially win a game or two late. Um, we need to be in tight games because we're going to be in a lot of close games in league play and we need to win our share of those. Yeah, so as, 
as we get closer to the season, I mean, the, there's a lot to look at or, around your team, around the country. What what are these last couple of weeks like for a coach in terms of just getting things set and getting the players ready to go for opening day? You know, our kids, Teddy, have done a great job to this point of, of with practice and Look, man, they're human. We're all human. Like, they're sick of practicing. They're sick of scrimmaging. They're sick of each other <laughs> in some ways. Um, and our kids have done been great. They've really practiced well. And uh, I think what is kind of typical, uh, you know, we're going to scrimmage this weekend. And um, that last weekend uh, before opening day can can historically be a little sloppy because they're, they're just so excited to play. And once you get a week or so out, you know, it's, it's, it's there, you know, starting to get more tangible. So, um, you know, we've practiced enough and, and really my theory is I, I try to be really hard on the kids in the fall. I try to put everything in uh, brush up on it and get back into playing shape in the preseason. And w- once the, the game start, I really want our kids to be free and just to go play. And, and those are kind of my two mantras. Like in the fall, it's just worry about getting better. Don't worry about where you fit or this, just get better. And when we get to the spring, like, just go play. Um, So, you know, we try really hard to teach our kids how we want them to play and have some freedom. Uh, And then once the games start to to really be loose and aggressive and and have some freedom and just just go play. So that's where we're hoping to, to be by February the 19th. So we'll start to wrap up here with our most important question. And that is asking you for your favorite sandwich. So uh, whether it be one you're making yourself at home or one you're picking up from some local spot, um, take it any direction you would like. But please, Brad Bohannon, describe to us your favorite sandwich. <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of just the old school traditional uh, turkey sandwich with a little mustard on it. But mm-hmm. um, I'm a big fan of the McAllister's Club sandwich. And, uh, you know, it's really close to we got a, a McAllister's close to campus and um I think I keep their, uh, pay their lighting bill by uh, <laughs> uh, a, a chicken club a, a couple of times a week. Yeah. Hard to go wrong. McAllister's that's a, that's a good choice. And they're, they're, they're all over. So no matter where you're listening to this, you probably have a McAllister's pretty close to you, but, uh, yeah, it's a good choice. Turkey, a good choice too. I, I, I'm, I don't know if I should say I'm ashamed to admit, or, or maybe I, sh- I should own it, but you know, I, I still have Turkey sandwiches for lunch, but fairly often several times a week. So I'm, uh, there's no, sh- no shame there. I, I, Enjoy. Joe, Let I would even say you should be proud of that. You should yeah, be proud. Yeah, I, th- I think so. You're right. You, you could t- you could tell I was getting more insecure as the sentence went on. No, yeah, you're right. I should be proud of that. I'm a turkey sandwich guy. Simple, you know. I do I do a little bit of mayonnaise too, mayonnaise, mustard, but the turkey and, and the cheese, and, and I like a big sandwich. I probably put too much turkey on my sandwich, honestly, but um, but that's you know that's the way I like it. So that's the way I do it. Yeah, well, you, you know, you can't be afraid to to be um, you know, go double meat or extra meat so that. Uh, you know, you don't have two sandwiches that way you're reducing your carb intake. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. And there's nothing worse. You get, you get a little flimsy thin sandwich and you've got, especially towards the end of the sandwich, you get bites that are like 90% bread. That, that, I mean, that's not what you're looking for. So you got to make sure that the turkey lasts throughout the entirety of the sandwich. Yeah, that's Teddy, a veteran. Concur? Do you concur? I mean, are you same thoughts on the sandwich? I, I, I think that's a veteran move with the going with the bigger sandwich. Uh, I would throw a little bit more on a turkey sandwich there. I, I would I would definitely have some lettuce and some tomato. Uh, but McAllister is outstanding play. Um, and, you know, they seem to be in a lot of, you know, it's not quite national, but it's, it's a, a lot of the South. You can 
you can roll into a college town and find a McAllister's yeah. pretty easily. So I, I, that's a big, it's a big spot for me on the road, I would say. Yeah. They're big in college towns. I, when I lived in college station, they had one just up the road. That's where actually where I learned, I learned about McAllister's was when I was living in college station. So I think, I think they're big in college towns. So that, that helps. Awesome. Well, Bo, we, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time today. We're going to be excited to see the tide. Uh, that's, uh, there's a lot to watch there. And for anyone that, that is still thinking Alabama, uh, is is at the bottom of the SEC West pecking order. You know, I would I would encourage you to take a deeper look at this team going into the 2021 season because I think it could be a pretty special season down there in Tuscaloosa. Guys, thanks for having me. And um, just season can't get here soon enough. And really excited about our group. We've got some really um, exciting pieces, and um, can't wait to see what it looks like here in a couple of weeks. Thank you again to Alabama coach Brad Bohannon for joining us here on the podcast today. Joe, you know, we, we put Alabama in the rankings at number 25. I said I wanted to be early on Alabama, taking an aggressive uh, stance with them. You know, I really like what Prelip brings. I really like the rest of their pitching staff. I think their lineup has upside. Um, and, you know, I, I feel pretty good about this, but at the same time, this is a team that hasn't made regionals in, in several years that has been at the bottom end of the SEC. And I'm sure when a lot of people who hadn't really paid much attention to Alabama's first month of the season last year, when they looked at our preseason top 25, this is probably one of the things that was most surprising. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think there probably were people to your point at the end of the interview with Coach Bohannon, I think there were a lot of people that that kind of thought, well, Alabama, and they, they might have seen what they did last year in going 16 and one, or in, in their minds just put up a gaudy record, and they might have gone Alabama, the same Alabama that's struggled to get out of the the basement of, of the SEC. But but this is not that. Now, whether they live up to being ranked is is another question because they do still have to prove it. But they're deserving of of being in these rankings, and it's not just what they did last year. All that's a big part of it. It's just the talent that they've accumulated, and it, it's it's Connor Prelip first and foremost. But but he's he's not alone in that certainly. And I I really I started to ask him a question. I, I just I couldn't quite word it. It's one of those deals where I, there was something I was fascinated by, and I, I wanted to ask him about. It. I just couldn't find the right way to ask it, and so it just didn't didn't happen in the in the window that we had. But you know what what they've pulled off, like whether or not, no matter how the twenty twenty one season ends, at least within the realm of possibility what they've pulled off there is, is just a really hard thing to do because there's no league like the sec and this dovetails into kind of what he was talking about with the sec and the difficulty of it is like, good luck getting out of the basement. When you really hit the basement, Alabama hit the basement hard. Like, you know, they, they fell down and bonked their head. I mean, that's, you know, they hit, they hit the floor pretty hard and to get back up and make up the ground that needs to be made up made up is a really hard thing to do when everyone around you, especially in that division is recruiting really well, you know, has, has the, the facilities and the track record and the fan base and all, all this kind of stuff. Every last thing you'd want to be a successful baseball program they've got. And so, you know, good luck making up ground on that and they've done it. And like I said, I, you know, we'll, we'll have to see them prove it, but they're as far as talent goes and their ability to do it, they're there. And so, uh, you know, if you're a team that, that has found itself on harder times in, in the SEC, like that's kind of an aspirational thing, I think, because what they've done and getting it turned around is, is not an easy 
thing to do. And um, I'll be fascinated to see how it plays out. And I, I think it would be great if Alabama, a brand I think that newer college baseball fans probably don't appreciate as a baseball brand because, you know, they, they, they were a consistent postseason team under Mitch Gaspard. They were in regionals more often than not. They had some really good teams in that mix, made some super regionals, but that program was really rolling under Jim Wells, came really close to winning some national titles in the late 90s, uh, had some national title quality teams in the late 90s that just could, couldn't quite get over that hump. And so similar to Tennessee in, in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, that's another brand that, that took a hit for a long time, um, but, but probably isn't appreciated as a national title brand uh, for, for newer fans. So um, it would, I think it'd be cool if, if Alabama, you know, kind of is able to live up to that and kind of bring some of that that back because it was it was a big time brand in college baseball that that fell asleep there for a little while even while they were having some success along the way and um so uh really impressive job by that staff and and it's not gonna be easy like i think he'd tell you it's not (laughs) certainly not going to be easy for them to live up to this expectation but the talent is there for them to do it yeah the the interesting thing with the sec west is that anytime you're looking for you know, someone to have a breakthrough or, or, or to go up somebody else you figure has to go down. At least that's, that's what you would expect. I don't know how true that is. I don't know who has gone down because Auburn has gone up under, under Butch Thompson. Uh, it just seems like the, the division just gets more competitive. Um, you know, and, and that I think is happening again here uh, with, with Alabama, I mean, maybe you could argue A&M has gone down as Auburn has arisen. Um, maybe that's an argument to be made, but, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would truly make that argument. And, you know, so I, I don't know who else would, would be going down to make room for Alabama. I just think that Alabama is, is ready to, to be really, really talented and compete in the, in the SEC West after, finishing at the bottom of the division for three or four consecutive years now. I think they're ready to take a step forward. Uh, And like I mentioned during the interview, we ranked five SEC West teams and the two that we did in Auburn and A&M, like, I mean, they could be in here. They, they wouldn't look out of place at all. I know that if you really like line Auburn and Alabama up, you're going to see two reasonably similar teams. I don't think that's by accident, given that Brad Bohannon, you know, came from Auburn and, you know, the kind of DNA that those two share, just having like worked under John Cohen and, uh, you know, seeing how he builds programs. Um, and then AM is going to pitch at a high level again. They have some Holes to replace, obviously. Azalacy goes, uh, you know, into pro ball as a, as a first-round pick. Zach Deloach, who is their best hitter, uh, goes into pro ball as well. Th- those are those are two significant pieces to lose and to have to replace. But you know, when you look at what the just the the overall talent on that roster, you feel good about it. Um, you know, we've never had to my knowledge anyway, I, I, I still have to do this research, but to my knowledge, we haven't, we've never had a division get you know, an entire division reach the NCAA tournament. Um, I think the SEC West is capable of doing that this year. And if you made me project a tournament bracket right now and baseball America's 
going to make me do that. <laughs> I very well probably would have all seven SEC West teams in. I don't quite know how that's going to look. Uh, you know, a lot of years we hear that the selection committee talking about really wanting to have teams that are at least 500 in conference play. That's going to be really hard to do if you're in last place in your division. But I think in this strange year, we talked about this on the ACC podcast, there's going to be some more room for teams from the top two conferences, the SEC and the, the ACC. And I think that's going to play out maybe in the fact that sixth or seventh place in the West might be enough to do it. Now, don't win eight games in SEC play. Don't go eight and 22 and think you're going to get in. But if you can get to 13 SEC wins, you know, I think you're going to be in the conversation, even if you are still under 500 in the conference. I think that's about right. I mean, for reasons we talked about last week, I think this is a scenario where teams that SEC teams or for that matter, ACC teams that might not have gotten a sniff in the last couple of years, I think are going to have, are going to be considered more heavily this time around because of, because of the circumstances. I, I think there's a scenario where the SEC West is just a really flat and by flat, I mean, um, not flat in terms of the quality, but I mean flat in terms of there's not a lot of air between the t- top team in the West and the, and the bottom team in the West. I think we could definitely see that. Whereas in the East, I think Florida being uh, head and shoulders better uh, outside of, I guess, Vanderbilt, uh, being head and shoulders better than most of the rest of their division, is, you know, gives them an opportunity to, to put up a little bit of a gaudier record. So I think the West is probably just a flatter division. And I do see the scenario you kind of describe where, no team in that division is is worse than, you know, twelve and eighteen. And does the twelve and eighteen team get a get a sniff if things break just right? Who who knows? We'll we'll have to see. I'm interested in the kind of the difference in the divisions here. I mean, the West and East kind of have always had different feels to them. The West has typically kind of been more of the black and blue division, where um, outside of you know Alabama having its struggles the last few years, everybody else has really kind of been in the mix. Those are all for the most part of late uh, uh, perennial postseason teams, the East tends to be a little more top heavy, although we've seen that change a little bit with, with the improvements in, in Tennessee and in Georgia, for example. But um, there are some fascinating storylines in the East I'm really looking forward to, and, and not just how good is Florida, because there is that, but there's a lot to prove in the East. I think you know a team like South Carolina, who we've talked about, is has a team that, that could perhaps get things going and, and get them off the roller coaster, if you will, and get them to being back and to be a postseason team year after year as they as they were before. You know, what is Georgia? You know, with a lot of questions about we, we don't have Georgia in the top 25. And, and I think the reason is, is fairly obvious just that, you know, hey, you're starting basically from scratch in, in your rotation and you lost some key position players as well. I mean, they're doing a little more rebuilding than just about anybody here. So there's that. And, and even to a certain degree, you know, a team like Tennessee is is like, okay, you've broken through, got to a regional in 19, 20, you got off to a hot start. You know, let's kind of see what you're building here and to see how just how good you can be. It feels like we're in the top 25, uh, hedging a little bit by kind of having them in the late teens um, when it feels entirely possible they could be quite a bit better than that, or maybe they're a little inconsistent. So all that feels on the table. So while the West, I think, is, is going to be the better quality baseball from top to bottom in terms of division, I do think the East is fascinating because there, there are a number of teams that are very much in, uh, we're in wait and see mode on for, for a number of different reasons. And we're going to find out this season what they're made of. And that's going to help set kind of the narrative about where they're going from here. 
so the SEC West hasn't had a national championship since uh, LSU won and was that 10, nine, nine. In the meantime, five titles for the East. <laughs> like it's, it's remarkable. It's not like the West hasn't played for titles. Um, you know, LSU played against Florida, Mississippi state got there uh, against UCLA, but that disparity is incredible. Uh, and Arkansas played for a title as well. Um, disparity is incredible, but you know, it, it is like that, that still that, that, you know, difference still can be found this year. Um, you know, you, you see Florida is the clear cut national title favorite coming from the East and then out in the West, I mean, we have Ole Miss ranked in the top five and therefore they're clearly a national title contender and Mississippi state at number eight, still in, in that range. Um, you know, but you could see a scenario where, you know, you shake the West up in any order you want it really. Uh, and it wouldn't, I, I would find it hard to be surprised. Whereas out East, if, if, if Florida or Vanderbilt didn't win the, the East division, I would be surprised. So it's just kind of an interesting dichotomy. I don't know why it's worked out that way. Um, there's probably no actual reason for it. Uh, just kind of a fluke that, you know, Florida and Vanderbilt happen to be in the East. Um, but it is, it is very interesting that, that that's, that's the reality here. Uh, and, and it'll be interesting to see that moving forward. I don't know that I really see a change in Georgia, uh, you know, having its resurgence changes things a little bit. Tennessee and South Carolina getting, you know, Tennessee getting off the mat and South Carolina, if they can get off the roller coaster, like both of those things help, help strengthen the division. But, you know, it's still a long way to go to, to chase down Florida and Vanderbilt for, for any of those teams, really. And that really is a fascinating stat. I, I hadn't really, I guess, you know, if I'd have sat there and thought about it, I, I would have eventually come to that. I wouldn't have been able to put the exact numbers on it, but I could have come to that same conclusion about that number, but that, that really is kind of fascinating. And you're right. It just, it's just one of those things that happens. Like there's, I, I can firmly say that there's really no good reason for that. It's not like there's something about being in the SEC West that is preventing them from coming through and winning a national title. I, I compare it similarly to that long drought the ACC had, you know, not winning a national title since 1955. And Perhaps there were ebbs and flows in, in the quality of the ACC, but for most of modern history, that was just kind of a thing that was true. And there wasn't necessarily any great reason why it just happened. So uh, this is also one of those things, I think, where um, you know, you'd think actually being in the SEC West would make you more disposed to getting a national title because you're, you're battle tested and you're always going to, if you win enough games, you're going to be in the postseason and you're, you're battle tested and you've, you've played the best. Nothing you see in Omaha is going to be, any better than what you saw in the regular season. And yet here we are. So uh, kudos to you. That is the stat of the day right there. If we were a radio show, we would call that the stat of the day and, and we would have <laughs> like a segment around it, you know, like um, because that, that really is, is, um, is fascinating. Yeah. I, you know, coach Bohannon touched on something that I don't, there's no way to quantify this. So I, I don't know. It, we can quantify it in draft picks or in if an SEC team wins a national title or, how many SEC players are on Team USA or just whatever. I don't, there are ways to quantify, but no perfect way. But, you know, the SEC really is going to be the, um, you know, the best version of college baseball that we've ever seen really 
And um, one, it will be important to appreciate that as, as observers of college baseball. And then two, I, I am really fascinated to see what it looks like. Does it, does it look any different? Is it noticeable that, hey, the, the quality is a little bit up? Do we see it in the postseason? You know, does the SEC end up not only getting more teams into the postseason, but we, do we see a whole bunch of SEC teams in Super Regionals and, and maybe some all SEC matchups in Super Regionals as we've, as we've had in the past? Um, I don't, so I don't know how that ends up being expressed, but it's no secret that talent is up across college baseball. And because the SEC is the SEC, more so in the SEC, and um, I don't know. I'm, I'm really just interested to see what that looks like and see if I can tell the difference and, and really just kind of be along for the ride because, uh, man, the quality is, is just going to be so, so, so high. What I'm most interested in, in those terms in the SEC this year is that you have way more seniors in the SEC than you would expect. Um, you know, we've seen seniors in the SEC, uh, you know, Jake Mangum and Antoine Duplantis both were, were seniors chasing the SEC hits record not that long ago. And that 2017 LSU team that finished as national runners up had a whole lot of players pass on the draft to, to come back for another ride. And they gave it a really good run and finished just shy of, of Florida that year. Guys like Jared Poche uh, on that team and, you know, JJ Schwartz at, at Florida came back and, for his senior year and Vanderbilt's 2019 title team had a whole host of seniors in, in important roles. But as a conference, you know, you, you expect your seniors to move on if you're in the SEC. And this year, there are more of them back than ever before. So what does that mean for them? Like, can they, can one of, or more of these teams like use that to their advantage, the way that Vanderbilt the way that LSU did. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot that, well, if everyone has seniors back, what is it really, who, who benefits from that? If everyone has this, well, maybe the SEC benefits the most because they have theoretically the best seniors. So I don't know that that's going to be something that's interesting. I haven't really broken down within the SEC who has the most, who has the least and all the rest of that. But uh, maybe I need to because may maybe that will be instructive. I don't think it's going to mean, um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to reshape the the top top of the conference. You know, it, it, Florida is Florida, Vanderbilt is Vanderbilt. Um, but I, I, I think that maybe some of the the stuff on, on the in the middle tier of the SEC, some of that may come down to who is experienced and who is not. Because I can't tell you how many times. While I was writing the SEC preview, which you can check out at baseballamerica.com right now, that I had to say something like, well, yeah, look at all this talent, but also look at the relative inexperience. You know, you look at Mississippi State's rotation, it has the upside to be perhaps the best rotation in the country. Christian McLeod, Will Bednar, Eric Sarantola all could be drafted in the top two rounds. They could all go a lot higher than that, too. They have that kind of stuff collectively they've made 13 career starts none of them have come in sec games and only sarantola has appeared in an sec game and i think he has all of five innings pitched against sec competition so like you, you have that on the one hand and then you have like ole miss with nikhazy and hoagland who went through a full season as sec starters you look at lsu uh, marceau and labus have done that um, you know, you look at Florida, Mace, and Leftwich have done that. 
uh, you know, but Mississippi State, I don't mean to single them out. They're not alone in that. South Carolina's in that boat. Um, you know, a lot of teams are in similar boats. And if it's not in their rotation, it's in their lineup or, or whatever. That's just a nature of what happened last year. But what is that going to mean? And, and, and how much will ha- just having the experience of pitching in SEC, you know, week, week after week, 10 weeks of that, it takes its toll what maybe the the units that are a little more experienced in that will be a little better set up for that challenge. That will be, that will be interesting. Can you imagine, um, you know, how frustrated people would be if that's what we had, because we've kind of just now kind of talked our, our way around this and into this. And it's, it's something I had, had, had not considered at um, any great length. But can you imagine how frustrated people frustrated people would be if like we immediately kind of came out whenever we we knew that about eligibility relief and we're like, yep, it looks like it's just gonna favor the SEC. Boy, that, that would have really gotten <laughs> the SEC finally caught a break. Um, but but I mean, but you're right. Like it stands to reason that if you figure that on the high end, seniors returning in a lot of cases, because look, I mean, you know, pardon me if you if you made this particular point in here, but you know. For the most part, you don't see the seniors who end up back on campus in SEC settings are typically either guys who were more fringy prospects who are looking to maybe goose their status a little bit, or you do occasionally get like kind of the, the you know, the four-year guy who's just been around, who's maybe not as impactful. Um, you know, he's, he's had a couple of bats here and there, but he's a good clubhouse guy that, you know, like having him around, team leader, that kind of guy those guys will occasionally make it through, but you don't see a lot of seniors on these rosters typically. And that is going to your point that is going to change. And so it stands to reason the seniors that are back didn't really want to be back for the most part. They expected to be playing pro baseball. And so, yeah, if those are the most talented of the seniors, then, then why not? Like, why, why won't it be the sec that ends up benefiting from, from a lot of that. And I, you know, I remember hearing, uh, you know, earlier this off season on a media availability with, with Tim Corbin talking about the inexperience that he had on his team. And, and it, it hits your ear a little bit weird because you're just so used to hearing coaches over and over this off season say, well, we're, we're pretty experienced. We got a lot of experience back and and two things can be true, right. You know, with, with, with Vanderbilt, like, you know, Isaiah Thomas has been on their roster for several years. So in that regard, he's experienced, but you know, to another point you made, he, he just hasn't had that many sec at bats, you know, and, and the same is true on, on the mound. Um, you know, considering how long, how famous he's been and how long he's been on campus, we haven't seen that much from Kumar Rocker and certainly not from Jack Leiter. So um, there is some inexperience around that league and, and it could be a differentiator. I could, I could 100% see that. It's something I, I hadn't really necessarily considered. And I think part of that is because I think we just rightfully so, by the way, we just kind of assume that the talent wins out. And I think that will generally be the case, but with similar talent, uh, yeah, that experience factor could end up being a, being a differentiator between like teams. And certainly it feels like we spend every year talking about how similar the middle of the SEC West is, for example. Um, and in, in those types of situations, uh, the experience factor could be a big deal for sure. Yeah, I mean, you say that about Rocker, but honestly, he's one of the most experienced pitchers in the conference, which is yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he kind of crazy time. to say, but <laughs> yeah, you know, but- outside of, you know, Mace and Leftwich, and a couple of others that you know I can think of if I if I you know really stop and put a list together, you know, there aren't guys that have done this a whole lot more than than Rocker, uh, especially if you just throw in 
before uh, NCAA tournament starts and call them SEC starts for better or worse that, you know, that kind of pressure, that kind of stage, even if it wasn't against SEC competition, you know, Duke and Michigan are still like, they would have played just fine in the SEC. Thank you. In 2019. Um, but at the same time, it, it's just the one year. So yeah, it, it's a, uh, it's a strange thing. And Jack Leiter who ranks fifth in uh, you know, in, in the draft prospects list, he's never faced an SEC team. Uh, you know, I have no doubt that he'll be good against them, but he's never done it. So, you know, it, it just hits a little bit differently when, you know, you, you're in a conference game, the light is the, the lights are, you know, I guess on a Saturday afternoon, the, the sun, <laughs> it's, it's just a little bit brighter. Uh, and, the, the competition's just a little bit tougher. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, we, we aren't going to know in, until it happens, but it is, it is going to be uh, something I, that, that is worth watching. I think. Uh, now Joe in college baseball, the fact that attendance is going to be limited this year, I don't think is going to be, too terribly much of a factor if we're looking at the country overall. Um, there are a lot of places where, you know, crowds for the most part, maybe not on a Friday night, but most of the games are kind of a friends and family situation anyway. The SEC is definitely not that though. And so if in most places crowds are limited to 20 or 25% of typical capacity, you're going to notice that the most in this conference, uh, you know, where you're used to 10,000 fans at Arkansas and LSU and the Mississippi schools. And um, while it might not be 10,000 at other places, it's four, five, six, 7,000 uh, is what you're averaging. That's going to be different this year. Uh, I, it's going to be unfortunate that some of the stuff that, that makes the SEC environment so great will be lessened as a result, but I have been a little heartened to, to see that, you know, Ole Miss has figured out how to let the students, you know, have their, their right field student section and that there should be beer tosses after home runs again. And that Mississippi State's left field lounge is going to be different. I saw in their rules that you can't serve anyone who isn't in your box. Uh, you can't serve them food. So, you know, you can't just wander between the boxes out there eating. Uh, that's that's a little different. Uh, you know, AM, you know, the, the ball four chant might be a little quieter if the student section isn't quite as full. But it, it's, uh, I, I've been hard to see that, that people have been making adjustments to allow for a lot of these traditions to continue. One of them was AM announced that they're moving their student section, they're putting in additional seating so that they don't have to reduce the capacity by quite as much, um, which maybe sounds a little counterintuitive, but if you add seating, then the overall capacity goes up so you can still put more people in the, in the, in the stadium. And so one of the places they're putting this additional seating is next to the opponent's bullpen down the first baseline. And they're going to put the students like right there. So I'm, I'm sure that'll be nice for, for all the opposing pitchers. I think the, the moral of the story at Mississippi State is make sure you are in your little pod with people whose food you prefer. If you can't be served outside of your little group, you need to make sure 
Mississippi State fans, make sure you are in the group with the person whose food you want to eat the most. You don't want to make a mistake and end up in the wrong pod and eating the food you don't want to eat. So like, be sure you're, you're being uh, thorough about this. Also, I think as far as the beer showers at Ole Miss goes, I think the obvious answer is beer super soakers. So we just, <laughs> you know, so they reached, you could spread out and then you just load up the beer. And I understand that, you know, beer is expensive, but they're throwing it out of the cups anyway. So it's, you know, it's, it's going to quote unquote waste, if you will. You just load up the super, super soaker with beer, uh, you know, and then you can just, you know, you know, pump the gun and then, then just fire it at each other. So you make sure you reach everybody. I think that problem is solved. And I guess if you, you know, you can still drink it, you can still drink it out of the top of the super soaker, I suppose, in between, in between home runs, but it's going to be a season of, of uh, problem solving uh, in a lot of cases. And from the silly, such as my super soaker idea, which I actually think is just a fun idea to the more serious, like Texas A&M finding a way to move seats and add seats to, to kind of, make the experience as best it can be, I think is, is all good things. So we've talked about it a million times being patient and understanding that everyone is, everyone is trying their best here. Like no one, no one here is trying to tank the season or make it a bad experience or give these student athletes a bad experience or take anything away from student athletes. So everybody is trying their best. Um, so kudos, yeah, kudos to the SEC for being creative and, and, you know, being specific in guidelines and rules and, and, and trying to make it to where the most people can have, the most fun this college baseball season, even if it's going to be a little bit different. I'll, I'll be interested to see if there's less of a home field advantage around college baseball this year, but specifically again, in the SEC, the, these are the toughest environments uh, typically. So does LSU lose a, lose a little bit? Does Mississippi state lose a little bit? If you don't have raucous crowds behind you, I, you know, I, I think that's something to watch. And you know, we've seen that, play out in the NBA and in college football is, is college baseball going to follow that kind of path or does baseball just that home field advantage, does it just not matter that much? Well, we'll th- this will be a nice test case to find that out. Yeah, for sure. Big, big year for uh, A and B comparisons on home field advantage. No doubt. <laughs> I expect, I expect a number of uh, papers to be presented at things like the Sloan sports analytics conference and things like that in the next couple of years, based on data in all sports from this year. Absolutely. You know, we've talked a lot about the, the teams here, the players are somewhat obvious. I just in that, if you know who the draft prospects are, you know, who the best players in the sec are, I can't really play the game of who's your sec pitcher of the year pick because uh, well, Joe would definitely pick Kumar Rocker, and I would have no real argument against that. I, I will say in, in the magazine for National Pitcher of the Year, Joe picked Kumar. And so because I didn't want to double up again, since Joe and I had already doubled up our national championship picks, I went with Jaden Hill. But, um, you know, certainly Kumar can't argue with that pick. I, you couldn't argue with probably 10 pitchers in the SEC for Pitcher of the Year. It's It's really incredible. And uh, you know, on the other hand, though, Joe, you know, Judd Fabian looks like kind of the clear favorite for player of the year. He might end up being the first position player, college position player drafted. Uh, he was a unanimous first team preseason All-American. He and Kumar Rocker were the only two unanimous preseason All-Americans. But if it's not going to be Fabian, um, you know, the, the player of the year race looks a little more wide open. You know, Max Ferguson at Tennessee, Jake Rucker, you know, those guys, All-Americans, 
John Rhodes, Kentucky. He was an All-American, although he has yet to play an SEC game. Um, you, know, you, you can look around and, and find some other candidates, but the the if for whatever reason, you know, and I, I should mention Robert Moore and, and Christian Franklin at Arkansas, uh, but if for whatever reason Fabian stumbles, uh, you know, the the player of the year race seems like it could get really wide open in a hurry. Uh, boy, could it. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. Um, of course, I, I, had I been doing an SEC preview, Judd Fabian would have, would have been the guy. I think secondary to that, you, you said his name there right towards the end is Christian Franklin, I think is the guy that I look for. And if for no other reason, the track record of Arkansas uh, pumping out hitters that are, that are productive is very good. Franklin has already been productive, again, because of that 2020 curse. We just haven't seen as much of him as we would have normally by this point. But Arkansas has a really good track record of, of, of these guys developing. He's going to be the focal point of the offense, which can go both ways. It, it does mean that maybe he gets pitched a little gingerly, but Arkansas has enough around him. I think that he's, he's still going to get plenty to hit. So I really like him. It's, it's kind of an, an, um, an all-around package, too. He's a, he's a good defender in the outfield, and I know that the player of the year stuff tends to be a, I don't know, 75 80% a, a hitting award, and understandably so, but, but he also does bring that element. He's a good athlete, he's run a little bit, so – I just kind of like that he has that, that kind of uh, all around package. Uh, Isaiah Thomas is another one. Um, his, he's a fascinating guy and that, you know, there's, there's still some, some holes in his game. Um, you know, a little bit of swing and miss maybe, but the power is very real. Um, his rate power numbers are really good in that, you know, his home runs per the number of at bats he has is, is a really intriguing number. Like he clearly has the prodigious power to put up some, the types of numbers you have to put up in order to catch people's attention in something like a player of the year race. So I think he could uh, get his name thrown in there. I think he's the breakout candidate in the Vanderbilt lineup. So he's a guy to watch as well. But uh, I think Franklin would be my pick outside of, outside of Judge Fabian. I, I like the Tennessee infielders too. I just don't know, and this is not to disparage them because I think they are all really, really talented players. There's a reason they're all Americans. But I just don't know that they're going to be the guys, unless one of them ends up hitting above 400, for example, which I suppose is on the table. But I don't know that they're going to put up the kind of um, headline grabbing stats that you tend to have to put up to be SEC player of the year types of players. I know there have been other examples of guys who, who weren't quite that in years when maybe the, the crop of players was a little bit down, but typically, you know, you're talking about some monster numbers and I just don't know that those guys are, are going to put up those types of numbers necessarily. I, I think that's a, a totally fair point to make um you know it's hard for for sec infielders uh you know just the the way it works if you're not if you're not like a dansby swanson um you know kind of all-around player there's probably somebody putting up some ridiculous offensive numbers that you as a second baseman or third baseman even um you know find it hard to to replicate if i was i so i picked fabian if I didn't pick Fabian, um, you know, there, there are just so many different ways to, to run with it. I, I think Christian Franklin is a, a totally, like a, a very, very strong choice. Probably I would have headed in that direction. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I wish we'd seen Robert Moore. I, I, I wish we could have gotten to see more of him because it was so good at the start of last season. Uh, and, and, you know, that he's just so exciting. So, so much fun to watch if there's anything, you know, more in there, or I guess just if he does it over a full season like that, 
that would definitely be a uh, a direction that that I think uh, I, I could see this going as well. Maybe a dark horse, Will Frizzell at AM, and uh, just a big power guy. And if he gets into a bunch of balls, they're going to go a really long way. And you know, maybe he bashes his way to an award uh, coming from a little more off the off the radar. I, if it's going to be that kind of uh, pick, I, I could see something, something like that, or maybe a, a Tim Elko at Ole Miss, who was really overshadowed last year by Keenan and Servideo, but this year is going to have to carry a little bit more of the load himself. Yeah, I think those right. are a couple of. Uh, uh, I think those are a couple of other good ones. You're right. It, it, it typically to break through if you're not one of those, you know, big time all around names, is you have to kind of be the uh, the masher you know, who kind of comes, I don't want to say comes out of nowhere, but, but steps up and has maybe a year that we didn't see coming. Um, you know, I, I feel like maybe Ben Attendee was kind of that guy, that kind of guy. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, you, you tend to, and, and those, those are good ones. I think Elko in particular is a guy who, you know, has, has put up nice numbers, but hasn't had that big, big, big breakout and, and 21 could be his season. So yeah, those, I will, I'll co-sign those as dark horse picks as well. All right, so we're going to talk plenty more about the SEC as the season continues. For some of you, we'll probably talk too much about it, although those of you who think that probably are not still listening at this point in the episode, so uh, we don't have to worry about them. But <laughs> the SEC always, you know, always finds its way into into what we're talking about. Just you know, when you're the the, the most talented conference in the country, it it just is it's bound to happen. So we'll get into all of these storylines and more throughout the season. Uh, again, if you want to read the SEC preview, you can now find that over at BaseballAmerica.com, team-by-team team capsules, best tools, top prospects, really anything you would want uh, to know about the SEC, hopefully you can find in there. Uh, we are going to continue our, our series of conference previews next week. We've got the, the Big 12 and the Pac-12 on tap, so make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app. And there is plenty more college preview content uh, online and in the magazine, which hopefully we'll be getting to, uh, to mailboxes of subscribers very soon. You can follow Joe and me on Twitter. Joe is at Joe Healy VA. I am at Ted Cahill. Uh, again, we will be back here next week. Until then, I wanna thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rap Soto for presenting the Baseball America College Podcast. Thank you to Alabama coach Brad Bohannon for joining us here today. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America College Podcast.